If you're enjoying the type of content you get here at Riverside Chats, conversations that go in-depth on art, politics, and everything in between, please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can find a link in the show notes that allows you to give a recurring or single amount, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is nothing. In which case, ouch, if you think this is a valuable part of your week, then we would appreciate the support so we can continue to give you the quality that you came here for in the first place. Thank you for considering supporting Riverside Chats and enjoy the show. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Ethan Warren, author of the new book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha. What he has been cultivating is something very strange and unique. His voice is not really like anybody else's voice, um, I don't think. I mean, who else is making a movie like Licorice Pizza? Nobody, yeah. I mean, like, arguably Richard Linklater, but... His voice is just so very distinctly his own. We're talking about the themes, influences, and influence of the iconic filmmaker behind There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread, and Boogie Nights. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Paul Thomas Anderson may be one of the last American auteurs. The term, which means author in French, grew out of the French New Wave and eventually made its way to America by the 1960s, where directors asserted control and authorship over their films. And the the concept has come to represent a kind of rebellion against the corporate content machine, these lone independent cowboys of authenticity in the arts. And yet today, while the theory is still around, It's difficult for filmmakers to sustain commercial viability as brands while the film industry finds itself shifting in the streaming age. So my guest today is Ethan Warren, who has a new book out called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha. We're talking about the changing landscape of American cinema, the legacy of Paul Thomas Anderson, who directed movies like There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread, and Boogie Nights, and what his influence on the medium might be going forward. Here is our conversation. I had Adam Naiman on a couple of years ago to discuss his book on Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks. And I found it interesting uh, when I cracked yours open that both you and Adam decided that the way to approach this body of work was not the traditional, I'm going to go from the first one to the most recent one. I'm going to go in order. So, you know, Naiman goes kind of in order of events depicted. And then you've got themes and sort of the ideas or sometimes parts of filmmaking as the way that you organized it. Why, why do you think both of you landed on this less typical structure when it comes to Paul Thomas Anderson? Well, um, did something that Adam and I uh, share is the belief that, um, and I know having spoken to Adam and, and also he, he has written to this effect, uh, that it's it's almost too easy and too tempting to talk about PTA in a chronological way because I think it's Adam's term. There's sort of this concept of the auteur's pilgrim's progress. If that's not Adam's term, it's, it, it belongs to somebody else. Um, but this idea that he, and this is more, you know, my my idea, um, that, that you can look at his, his um body of work is almost like the idea of autorism made manifest that he is the the uh 70s dream of the autor kind of all all compressed down into one guy's rise fall and rise again if you trace his career and it's a very minor fall that he makes and many people would argue that there is no dip and in fact he has just been climbing artistically from the beginning but um if we look at i'm referring specifically to the the magnolia burnout moment um it's just, it's, Tom, you know what it is? It's just so much fun to talk about his career chronologically. It almost feels too easy. And that's what it comes down to. I'm, I'm kind of getting too far into the weeds too quickly. And the reason both Adam and I came at it the way we did uh, in our individual ways is because it is too easy and too much fun to just talk about the nine movies in order because they provide such a convenient narrative that it, it sort of flattens out the more interesting elements of the individual works. Well, so you you did bring up the concept of the auteur, and I think that that's important when we talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. So the the concept originate, originally coming from France, um, this sort of idea that the director has the authorial 
has the authority as the author of a movie. And that's been it's had its heyday in New Hollywood. It got sort of reconstructed in the 90s. It seems to me that Anderson is maybe in the last generation of cinematic auteurs uh, in the sense that he can command these types of big budgets and he has this control without needing to necessarily have consistent big box office results. Whereas, you know, if he made HBO shows, I think there would be less of a consideration of how successful they are. It seems like some of those don't have to have a huge viewership to be considered, well, it's just worth it for the art. So long as there's enough of a stable viewership, we're okay with that. And I I think of people who maybe today are on their ascent of their careers, who if they had come up at the same time as Anderson, you know, like Barry Jenkins, for example, maybe he'd be a household name now. Whereas at the moment for him to get a serious budget, he's got to do an Amazon show or a Lion King movie. I mean, do, do you think that Anderson and uh, Tarantino and uh, Wes Anderson, are they sort of the last of the American auteurs? Boy, well, that remains to be seen, I guess, and will always remain to be seen as long as they are making movies. There will always be the potential for a resurgence of the auteur. Um, it's, and it's such a, that's such a funny term, isn't it? That is, is very hard to actually define effectively. Um, so I, I hesitate to use it too much. Um, but are these guys the last of their, of, of a certain type of, I mean, they're the last to benefit from a certain generation of movie going, certainly. Um, and so, you know, already guys in their cohort like Noah Baumbach have have shifted more towards um, embracing streaming and Netflix. Um, he's somebody else who I think is sort of arose at the same time as Anderson and is is comparable to him in a lot of ways as they emerged. People just don't go to the movies the same way they used to. Um, partially because there is such a difference in what is on offer to you on a given Friday night if you feel like going to the movies, which people used to just do more casually than they are able to now in terms of the limited limited options out there and the limited spectrum of what is available to you. Um, guys like Anderson and Tarantino and Wes Anderson did emerge at a time when there was much more variety available, and so they were able to create their stamp on a broader scale than than you're able to now. I mean, who who is breaking out out of Sundance and becoming a brand name for themselves anymore? Um, when is the last time that happened? I mean, aside from something like Coda going on to win Best Picture, but I don't know that Coda does that doesn't have the auteur element of it though, right? Nobody or not it nobody, doesn't. but that's there's not a clearly associated filmmaker behind a movie like that. No, no. I mean, no offense to, I think it's Sean Heater, um, who is very talented. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of when Sundance was still cranking out sort of when it was king making the way that it was in the 90s. It certainly doesn't have that function anymore. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know that I I can think of one off the top of my head that's all that recent. And I I think you see a lot of these people, they do move either into TV or they're able to work at sort of a lower budget level and make something work like – you know, Shiva Baby sticks out as an example of someone who Emma Seligman seems like she's moving in that direction of being this exciting filmmaker with kind of a singular style and focus. But I don't know that it's uh, got the commercial viability anymore. Uh, and I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know what that means for uh, the landscape. It certainly seems to coincide with this turn toward nostalgic stories among a lot of these 90s auteurs. Well, sure. I mean, the other thing, Sundance, uh, it, it the uh, the Daniels are a Sundance success story to just one guest director for their second movie, which was not a Sundance movie, but was a South by Southwest movie. They are they are a genuine Sundance discovery, I think. Yes, that's true. So maybe, maybe it's all just uh, doom and gloom and maybe it's nothing. But uh, I, if I could uh, position us to the idea of some of what is being focused on, uh, one of the things you mentioned in your book is uh, you say that Anderson sometimes works within kind of a, if we, I don't know if historical fiction is really a genre people generally ascribe to movies, but I see what you're saying in the sense that almost everything he's done is, uh, it's a period, it's period set. And that's not unusual among a lot of prestige filmmakers today, like especially those peers from the 90s, Tarantino, Cohen's, Wes Anderson. They rarely make movies set in the contemporary, in today, present day. And I wonder why you think that is. I don't, I mean, is it just nostalgia? Is it that they're sort of looking back as they're reaching uh, this sort of later stages of their career? Or is there something about the present day that's scary? Or <laughs> what, what do you make of that, the, the focus? Well, I know that Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't want to make movies with cell phones in them. 
and he, he basically said as much on the Licorice Pizza Press store. He addressed this question a couple of times. And I believe he referred to the modern world and smartphones in particular as a cannonball that is dragging us all down. And there, there does seem to be this sense, particularly with uh, Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino as well. They, they, all of them about 15 years ago made their last movie set in the present day and then said, no, thank you. And, and it, it is interesting. You, you don't want to read too much into it um, because it, it's, it's easy to get a little bit doom and gloom about it in a certain way, uh, I think, or to get, get cynical about it, rather, um, this sense that you're avoiding um, <laughs> uh, commenting on, on the, the real world you know, issues of the day or, or commenting on the implications of the stories that you're telling. Um, I linger a couple of times in the in the book on uh, comments by this socialist critic whose name I'm blanking on, but uh, who absolutely hates Paul Thomas Anderson because he sees him as completely politically ambivalent and that even his movies set in the past are fairly politically neutral and avoid commenting on the, you know, implications of There Will Be Blood, which is a movie that was seen as so commenting on the 21st century in so many respects, but something he really refused to comment on. There is this idea that it also got floated around the time of Licorice Pizza last year, that he he has retreated into the past um, as a way of masking some of his own maybe disinterest in uh, hewing to political correctness for the uh, Licorice Pizza example, um, that, that it's easier to sort of hide your biases and hide your, uh, I don't know how you want to phrase it, um, disinterest in in uh, contemporary sexual mores than by setting it in the past. It was a very rambling attempt to answer that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, it makes me curious, though, because I, I guess when I look at his movies, I don't see them as apolitical. Um, I think uh, in Adam Naiman, when he wrote about Licorice Pizza, he talked about the that it's a very political movie, just always in the margins uh, of what's actually being focused on. And may- maybe that's generally the case, but I don't really know how you can say There Will Be Blood does not have politics on its mind in a fairly substantial way. Or, I mean, you think of something like uh, Inherent Vice, even though it's lifted from Pynchon, that's a very political movie. I, I think that uh, it seems like the fact that he will not comment on something outside of the movies is a weird standard to hold for a filmmaker who seems to be fairly interested in these big pressing issues and how they've developed over the course of the 20th century. I mean, would you agree that he's uh, hiding his politics? Well, he he himself has gone out there and said, I don't want to make political movies. It would be horrible to make a... He said in regards to There Will Be Blood, it would be horrible to make a political movie. So I think he kind of equates political filmmaking with didactic filmmaking. Um and yes, I think it's, I, I think you, you'd have to be a little bit willfully incredulous to ignore the the implications at the heart of something like There Will Be Blood uh, or Inherent Vice. Uh, it's, you, you can't claim Inherent Vice is, is apolitical. That movie is incredibly political. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but the movies that he has made from his own stories um, are, are often very cloistered from um, real world if you look at something like There Will Be Blood, it's taken from this incredibly politically charged work, but he lopped off most of the political stuff and created his own story, which is more mythic and more uh, biblical, which I think is more where his, his interests lie, is, is more in the sort of broad strokes, great themes than in the fine-grained uh, historical detail that a lot of the movies uh, rest upon. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ethan Warren, whose new book is The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. I, I don't disagree with that. It's, it's just, I don't know, it seems like uh, it's a standard that sort of implies that a filmmaker should be openly political in ways that... Uh, I don't know. I, I guess it doesn't have to be didactic. I think about some of his uh, influences, you know, like the the callbacks to something like Taxi Driver or Nashville that come up in Licorice Pizza. <laughs> Those are very political movies. And they sort of, they, they exist, they breathe, they continue. That tradition, uh, those callbacks, you know, they're sort of all over his work. Uh, even as someone who would want to adapt 
uh, a book like Oil, it's I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of politics in there, and I don't. Know, sometimes sometimes you don't want to hear what the director has to say. Sometimes the work being able to speak for itself is kind of interesting in its own right. But uh, I don't know. I wonder as far as our changing viewing habits, you know, the fact that these movies struggle at the box office a lot of the time, even though they are very well regarded, uh, if our habits are changing, not only in the sense of what we talked about before, which is people are more likely to watch something on TV because maybe it's easier, you don't have to go out, but also what we're expecting from what we consider sort of the important movies, which are now called the art house movies. Do you think that our, our audience expectations are different and that that maybe doesn't align with what Paul Thomas Anderson has been trying to do and what he's kind of been cultivating since maybe there will be blood? Well, what he has been cultivating is something very strange and unique. Um, his voice is not really like anybody else's voice, um, I don't think. I mean, who else is making a movie like Licorice Pizza? Nobody. Um, nobody, yeah. I mean, like, arguably Richard Linklater. But his his voice is just so very distinctly his own. I mean, it's it's just, it's so hard to predict what people want. Because, again, like, if you're thinking about what was the huge art house hit of this past year, it was Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is a movie that, again, is comparable to basically nothing. Um except if you want to be uncharitable, things like Rick and Morty. Um, so how are, you, how are you supposed to predict what, what people want at the art house and, and what is going to hit? Um, I mean, he had Anderson had a huge hit by his standards with Phantom Thread. So I think one of the main lessons is that you, you reteam with Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> and do something set in a sort of prestige uh, era period setting. That's an easy way to hit if you're Paul Thomas Anderson, but he doesn't seem to want to do that necessarily. And then he zags instead of zigging every time he seems to sort of figure out what the uh, the formula is. It can't just be as simple as Daniel Day-Lewis is popular to explain There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread. Why do you think those two hit with audiences in a bigger way than a lot of his other movies? Well, I think the uh, collaboration with Day-Lewis was incredibly fruitful. Day-Lewis had a very active hand in creating both of those characters and so shaping both of those stories. Um, it's the only time really that he has had anything kind of like a co-writer aside from when he was adapting pinch on. Um, and so I think you do have to give a lot of the credit to day Lewis um, just as a, as a creative hand. Um, I think he was the one who came up with the name uh, Reynolds Woodcock. I think it was it was supposed to be something like Arthur Dapple Jr. And then he and Paul were texting each other and just trying to one up each other. And Daniel Day-Lewis came up with the name Reynolds Woodcock. And as Paul Thomas Anderson said, he choked on his cornflakes. <laughs> well, it, uh, you write in the book that Anderson had a case of writer's block between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. And then he emerges from the five-year gap with a storytelling sensibility, as you put it, guided by an elliptical internal logic that eschews conventional cause and effect plotting, a style that can be significantly compared to Kubrick's. So in, in your book, I, I was wondering, what, what do you account for that? What is it that happened that led to that particular direction of his reinvention? Because it can't just be uh, working on Prairie Home Companion. So the, you're talking about the sort of turn towards the the Kubrickian elliptical storytelling, right? Because um, I think sort of the, the term that I lean on, yeah. He sort of reinvents himself once with Punch Drunk Love, and then again with There Will Be Blood back to back. But they seem to be kind of these, at least with There Will Be Blood, it was that labored process of really struggling to find the story, and then this new style emerges. Yeah, well, I think part of it is is working more slowly and deliberately than he did when he did his first three movies, basically back to back to back. Um, his first three movies all came out between 1997 and 1999. Um, he turned from there towards this mode of more sort of assiduously crafting each project in a way that is a little bit more Kubrickian, um, a, you know, a, a sort of spending many years honing every detail of your project. Um, and then where that comes through... Is, is this more mysterious approach to storytelling where Boogie Nights and Magnolia for all of their um, many, many great qualities are not very mysterious movies. They're movies that are yelling at you about what they are about all the time. Um, 
whereas from there he he wants to create more space for sort of eeriness and oddness and he does it in this way that i think can be um compared to kubrick where a lot of uh the sort of movement of Kubrick's films comes from the sense of ellipsis in the storytelling, the sense of the dot, 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 that that whole scenes or chunks have been removed that would typically be there to sort of knit together a narrative. Uh, you see this most prominently, I think, in The Master, which, you know, characters, the, the characters are constantly jumping across these huge, you know, sections of the country or the globe and just sort of in the space of a ship's wake passing beneath them it's it's a movie that is guided by this dot 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 and then this dot 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 and i think he ever since the time of magnolia which is a movie that's about as outwardly expressive as it can possibly get he has been looking for ways it seems to me to strip back and strip back and become more and more reliant on implication um rather than explication uh, as Magnolia is. <laughs> um, and so the, the Kubrickian ellipsis, uh, which is a term that I think I borrow from, uh, a great writer named Elisa Petsata, I believe. Yeah. You talk about his, uh, his approach to writing, uh, and particularly his, uh, at least initial disdain for rewriting. And it seems like there's the, the kind of a fun contradiction, between the guy who is this Kubrickian, he's becoming this Kubrickian perfectionist, but at the same time will not fix the typos in his own script because he thinks that those matter so much and you shouldn't rewrite because it's got to come from that emotional place. I mean, do, do you think that his approach to writing itself, um, has that become more perfectionist or is it still based on these sort of carefully uh, curated whims? <laughs> uh, carefully curated whims is probably a good way of... of thinking of it because there is that tension between the sort of very crafted and the very spontaneous that is really at the heart of of what makes his work so interesting i think is that tension i'm sorry i just drew a complete blank can you just <laughs> repeat the question for me basically has, has his writing style shifted from the really impulsive early career you know uh shouldn't rewrite although he said it more vulgarly than that but we're on public radio um, oh, we can't, we can't, we can't say what rewriting is for, right? We can bleep it out. I, you can probably say it. I'm not going to say it because then it's out oh, there. Oh, no, I don't want to say it. <laughs> no. Rewriting is for blank. Yes. Blank um, derogatory term. Yes. Right. Which I think that, that tracks to me a little bit more with the guy who's really in love with Altman, who sort of is this kind of a perfectionist, but also this sort of warts and all freewheeling. I'm going to figure it out a lot of the times in the moment and draw from a lot too. Kubrick, who doesn't seem like the kind of guy who uh, is just going to go with a whim, he seems very meticulous, even though he, again, was sort of figuring it out in the moment. So I guess my, my real question is, how does he go from that guy who in those <laughs> those early, uh, the behind-the-scenes documentary of Magnolia, who just seems sort of coked out of his mind, uh, to this sort of gentle, uh, you know, I think dark wizards, what Mark Maron calls him. I think you quote that in the book, too. So does does the writing itself change? Is it the director who's changing, or how how much would you track his process shifting uh, in the writing stage? Well, given that he is always the writer and director, I think it's it's tough to necessarily separate the two, and so it's easiest to just say he has shifted as a storyteller. Um, and I think you you can read the scripts for every one of his movies except Licorice Pizza, and. I don't see that the writer of the screenplay for Phantom Thread is a substantially different writer from the screenplay of Magnolia, except in all the ways that he is different, um, I guess. He's, he is still writing from a place of spontaneity and looseness, it seems to me, um, rather than Kubrick, who Kubrick was always, uh, virtually always adapting a novel, going back to the killing. I think everything is adapted from a novel from there on. And so he is, is doing something a little bit different than what Anderson is typically doing. Um, but how, I mean, how, how does he change as a storyteller? I mean, a lot of things happen. He, he becomes a dad. I think you always can <laughs> trace at least something to, uh, you know, the, uh, just the natural life changes that come along with that. It, Licorice pizza is a story that is very much made by a dad. It seems to me. Um, the 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 first one after he became a dad though was that there will be blood. 
There Will Be Blood, I think, is the movie he became a dad on. Um, maybe less of an obvious dad movie. Maybe. I guess so. Although it's every one of his movies, more or less, is about being nice to your kids and how you got to be nice to your kids. And There Will Be Blood, more than anything, <laughs> this side of Magnolia is a movie about how you got to be nice to your bleeping kids. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, yeah, I, I was fascinated. I, I'd never considered that There Will Be Blood could be viewed as through HW's eyes. And then you, you, I forget who you quote, but that comes up in your book. And it made me rethink the whole movie to some extent. Um, yeah, okay. it's, I think you're probably referring to the, uh, the editor of the movie, um, Dylan Titchener, uh, had a real uh, interest in shooting uh, inserts of HW listening during conversations to create the effect that we were hearing things sort of from his perspective, because the equivalent character in the novel is the, um, is the perspective character. You're, you're generally getting things more or less from his perspective, although it's, it's written in the third person. Um, so we're trying to, trying to evoke that effect. Yeah. On screen. Yeah, as far as the the novels, I mean, even though he's not often directly adapting a work of literature, uh, I'd, I'd say it's fair to say Paul Thomas Anderson is a very literary director. Um, you specifically track how much he loves Steinbeck, and I think you see that a mm. lot in the, his later works. And it made me think, you know, I, th- I wonder if some of what he's doing and what movies have been able to do, and probably TV now, is take that place that some of these great works of literature from the past hundred years used to have, you know, a book like oil, a book like uh, grapes of wrath. I don't know that we have analogies for books that can tackle these big, serious themes, the great themes that uh, also are packaged in this very entertaining, emotionally involving story that become these big cultural landmarks. It seems like we maybe don't have that as much in books and movies have sort of taken that place. And while his stuff is not uh, literary in the way like Noah Baumbach has all these characters referencing books, uh, he seems to be trying to sort of carry on a literary tradition through film. Do you think that that's fair? Um, I think that that is a really interesting idea. Um, I think that, yeah, the the Steinbeck influence on him is clearly huge, at least around the time of There Will Be Blood and The Master, uh, which is a movie very heavily influenced by Steinbeck's life story, if nothing else. Um, and general viewpoint. I mean, he's he is a director who is so so soaked in movies that it's it's hard to necessarily see something like Phantom Thread as anything but a movie indebted to other movies. Um, so I guess it kind of depends on on how you define literary and what would constitute the literary tradition as it as it's translated to screen. Yeah, I guess I'm so not. I guess I'll throw that back to you. <laughs> yeah, do we do we have a literary now, or is it all screen based? And then it's just sort of maybe the 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 screens have subsumed the literary. Well, certainly in terms of you know you listed those qualities of books. Uh, you know there are books that tackle the great issues and are telling great stories and are cultural landmarks. And I'm sure there are books out there that are touching the great themes and telling great stories. It's just uh, it's the becoming cultural landmarks part that is absent. And then we have this um, this other complication, which is um, if movies absorbed that, has streamers then absorbed the movies that absorbed that? Right. So I mean, well, you know, and then there's there's the idea that long form storytelling on streaming services is the equivalent of novels, novelistic storytelling, which I think is a inherently flawed argument. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess for better or worse, screen narrative has has taken the place culturally that used to exist on the page. Uh, though there are many of us out there who still love to read. Yeah, I like to read too, but I don't, sometimes I feel like I'm uh, not joined by a lot of people in that club. It's like a Tobias and Arrested no. Development. There are dozens of us. Yes. Yeah, in, in increasingly dwindling uh, few, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking with Ethan Warren, whose new book is The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha following the filmography, influences, and legacy of the director of movies like Inherent Vice, Punch Drunk Love, and Magnolia. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Hello, uh, my name is John Bach, calling in about how to retain people in the state of Nebraska. 
Uh, well, I'm a lifelong Omaha uh, citizen. I've been here all my life. I'm 27 now. The most desirable thing that I look for in a city is public transit. I really hate that I have to drive everywhere in the city, and it'd be nice if I could, you know, take a bus so I don't have to check the schedule or get on a train of some sort. Uh, the orbit has been great in the city, but wish it went elsewhere other than just Dodge Street. It'd be great if I could take the, the bus to the airport, you know, it's just a, a simple thing that would definitely contribute to uh, sticking around here in Omaha. I don't have any plans to leave yet, but uh, there's some things that would definitely keep me here, so... Hopefully we can do something like that. Thanks. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Today I'm talking with Ethan Warren, whose new book is The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, following the filmography, influences, and legacy of the director of movies like Licorice Pizza, Inherent Vice, and Punch Drunk Love. The book is available now, and here is the rest of our conversation. Well, for all our talk of influences, uh, something else that's happening now is that Anderson is becoming a very commonplace influence on younger filmmakers, I think in a way that's probably analogous to Scorsese or Kubrick as the ones who get name dropped when people say, I want to be the new this or the new that, and they're becoming filmmakers right. now. Uh, like <laughs> I, was, I was sort of taken aback when I watched Babylon, for example, and how it's basically just beat for beat boogie nights, but the Alfred Molina scene is the climax now. Um, so I, I wanted right. to ask you, what, what what do you think Anderson's influence is on filmmaking? That is a really interesting question because he is a director who is so made up of influences himself that anything I can think of that could be seen as a trademark is is is, is very possibly something that he picked up from somebody else, which is kind of how the whole thing works. It's you know, influence is is a chain, um, and the stuff that inspired him was inspired by other people often um but so you know what are some of his trademark shots well kind of the jonathan demi trademark uh the the demi's you know the demi close-up has become a trademark of anderson's so if anybody's ripping that off they're ripping off jonathan demi um so what is what what could his influence be then i mean it's it's probably going to be end up being more uh thematic and more holistic i guess rather than than the specific camera work of somebody like um scorsese like if you're influenced by scorsese you can probably guess what that means in terms of camera work um and to say the same thing or or you know to, to be influenced in your your shooting and your set design by wes anderson it's pretty easy to imagine what that would mean um and it's harder with somebody like anderson who I think partially because he is such sort of a, a chameleon, he can change his his stripes to fit whatever uh, story he feels like telling, um, is harder to pin down in that way, I think, to his credit. So I really have no idea what anybody who gets up in front of a movie and says, I was really inspired by Paul Thomas Anderson, generally speaking, could be referring to. I mean, you know, I could certainly see somebody saying, this movie was inspired by There Will Be Blood, or this movie was inspired by Phantom Thread. Um, but it's it's hard to know what it would mean to be inspired by him, generally speaking. Does does that speak to his singularity as an auteur in a in a kind of impressive way, or does does that weaken it because it's sort of like saying if his voice is singular, but made up of these? I mean, everyone's the sum of their influences, right? But does the chameleon-like right. element, does that weaken the auteur element? I don't even know if the auteur concept tracks anymore. I mean, what do, you, what do you make of the auteur? Is it a useful concept today? Well, I think it's a useful concept that is is badly misused a lot of the time. It basically just refers to the idea that that the director can be considered the author of the work at the end of the day. Um, it, it's not denying that, you know, dozens to hundreds to i don't know if you look at those marvel credits blocks probably thousands of people working on a movie it's just the one that argues that at the end of the day you can hold it in your hands and say this is a paul thomas anderson movie and that means something in a way that you can't hold oh my goodness <laughs> yeah who are you gonna throw under the bus here was it david schwimmer made that movie run fat boy run oh yes that's what it was called I forgot all about that yeah I was just trying to think what was what was the least auteurist movie I could possibly think of, and it was that one. Um, 
You don't well, hold that in your hands and say, this is what a David Schwimmer movie means. That's. I think that's a good example because also that came right after Hot Fuzz, I think. And so you could see Edgar Wright has his visual grammar and we're maybe expecting that from other Simon Pegg movies. And you, you didn't get that from Run, Fat Boy, Run. Sure. I mean, but it's such a tricky term because then you look at somebody like David Gordon Green, who I would argue is almost the anti-auteur. But even he, you got to grant him his status as a director whose authorship means something, even if every single one of his movies is wildly divergent and often seems to be sort of working for hire. It's just where where you draw the line, I think, between saying somebody is an auteur and somebody is not should not be considered an auteur is where things get a little bit tricky. Um, and I think probably where we fall astray of the um, useful meaning of the term, which is just is the director, the author of the movie. So for you to want to write this book, it's got to come from a place of a lot of personal affection and admiration. And I think that comes through in a lot of your articles. It seems like for the book, you, you tried to maybe not let yourself be too present, which makes sense for the, the style of something like that. But uh, what, what was it that drew you to Anderson? Why does he speak so strongly to you as a writer and filmmaker yourself? Well, I think part of it is something that you alluded to a few minutes ago, which is the movies are never the same. He never makes the same movie twice. Um, and so it's it's very hard to get a handle on him and figure out exactly what he's doing. Um, and so that consistent sense of of mystery and and wanting to investigate something um, is at the heart of my affection for him. Going back to the first movie of his that I ever saw was Punch Drunk Love, which I saw when I was, I think, 16. And I hated it. I, I had a viscerally negative reaction to that movie, and I walked out of it feeling completely affronted and enraged because I felt like something was going on with that movie that was beyond my comprehension, that there was there were things happening just below the surface of that movie that that I couldn't access right away, and that was just an affront to my 16-year-old brain. And that quality in his movies has never quite gone away for me. They still need to be sort of watched and rewatched and unpeeled in a way that is completely divorced from any kind of like, you know, complex plotting. It's just, you need to watch them again and again, just to kind of figure out what he's doing and why. And there's not a lot of directors who can that consistently churn out work that can open up that way across multiple viewings and be so initially opaque. You know, what is a movie like Inherent Vice, if not the most initially opaque movie ever? But then it's this beautiful magic trick that blooms into this incredibly rich emotional story the minute you sort of take your eye off the ball of the plot. Um, they're all like that. They're all so dense and so deep. And that's what I love to fall into every time one of those these movies comes out. This comes up in your book mainly through the idea of Brechtian alienation. And his idea of alienation comes from primarily his plays and this idea of the way you put it is Anderson is engaging viewers in the act of receiving his stories by alienating them from the typically passive experience of viewing a mainstream narrative film. So I think that's interesting to stop on and to think of Anderson as a kind of neo-Brechtian filmmaker because I'd, I'd never considered him that way. When I thought about that, alienation through um, something that is either off-putting, difficult, or interrupting its own narrative, I guess I, I pictured somebody like maybe Adam McKay's late style in The Big Short or Vice as being sort of Brechtian, sure. where I never would have thought of it for Anderson, who what you're saying makes sense in the sense that he makes these dense movies, but I feel like they are very emotional, even if you don't get, uh, I don't know, even, even if you're sort of stuck in the plot, the way that he shoots emotion tends to be very affecting and effective as an experience. So like a movie like Punch Drunk Love, I struggled with that too, but I, I guess I wouldn't say, I don't know if alienation is exactly the word for it, because don't you feel like even when you're watching it those first couple times, any of his movies, even if there is something that's hard to figure out, hard to wrap your mind around, it's still very easy to get wrapped up in the characters and their struggles? Absolutely. I mean, the idea of alienation effects, and one thing, to say is that Brecht was an incredibly um, political right. <laughs> artist um, and that uh, his his goals with his art and with his 
his alienation effects were often very much hand in hand, whereas Anderson's work is not as much overtly sociopolitically engaged as Brecht's is. And some people have taken some umbrage with with the use of Brecht's name for work that is not overtly political. Um, so I don't want to lean too hard on the idea that he is a Brechtian filmmaker, but he he definitely uses uh, alienation effects, which I think that's not a dirty word by any means. And often I think the use of formally alienating effects draws you a little bit closer to the experience of seeing the movie, uh, of receiving the story. So I think something like Punch Drunk Love, which does use a whole lot of techniques <laughs> that are, I mean, the term alienation effect really refers to any any effect that is used that makes the viewer aware of the fact that they are watching a story unfold, that breaks the fourth wall or has has that effect of bridging the distance between you and the film, of making you aware of the fact that you are are consuming something actively and you're not actually involved in the world of the story. You are consuming something that has been created for you. And so what Anderson does in Punch Drunk Love is he messes with the sound design and he messes with the lighting and he messes with the formal elements of the movie in a way that sort of puts you on your toes and makes you sort of need to question why you are why these choices are being made, why they are distinct from the choices made in other Adam Sandler movies. And then that only heightens the moments of intense emotion. And so I think the emotional effects of Punch Drunk Love are heightened by the alienation more so than they are there existing despite the alienation. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ethan Warren, whose new book is The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. I'm glad you brought up how Brecht was so political because that is something I wanted to get to, which is I think feel like we've talked a lot about how much what Anderson is drawing from, whether that's literary, whether it's film, whether it's play, is sort of the tools of politics within art to then make movies that people grapple, <laughs> they grapple with how political they actually are supposed to be or if they're supposed to be political at all. But isn't he kind of adopting so many of the, the types of grammar of political intention through entertainment to make his movies? Like that, that, that can't be totally accidental. It can't just be that he happens to like political art but doesn't love the politics. Yeah, I mean, I uh, by no means do I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson should be out there making movies about the modern day and politics. And I, I think, I don't know that there were many of us who were very excited when there was that, I assume, uh, false news story going around a week or two ago saying that he was making a movie about the modern day Republican Party and was looking for someone to play Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. I don't think that's anything that got anybody particularly amped um, <laughs> by that idea. Um, I think it's just, it is worth noting that his his. Uh, polit his his political interests tend to come in the form of commenting on the past rather than commenting on the present. Um, I I think there's something rich and interesting to that that tension um, that I I'm not sure I, I feel like I'm I'm on my toes a little bit here like <laughs> I I don't want to come across as the guy who thinks Anderson needs to be this uber political filmmaker nor that he is not inherently political because all storytelling is political and I think his has a rich socio-political undercurrent to it. Um, I also think it is is inherently interesting that he stopped making movies about the present day the minute that smartphones started existing. Surely he could make a good movie where somebody has an iPhone, right? Do you think these guys are uh, over-exaggerating a little bit here? I think he just doesn't want to. I think he has absolutely no interest in... I mean. You can listen to the interview that he did with my friend Travis Woods on the Increment Vice uh, Scene by Scene Inherent Vice podcast. Uh, they, they got PTA on during the Liquor's Pizza Press tour. And he said that if you start trying to tell the equivalent story of Liquor's Pizza in the present day, smartphones and YouTube and everything just becomes so present so quickly that he himself loses all interest in the story. I think there's something interesting to that. Why are you so so revolted by the present day? Why do you feel that the smartphone is solely a 
cannonball that is dragging us down. Right. As opposed to focusing on any of the sort of more egalitarian uses of a smartphone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not like people don't have all kinds of incredible emotional adventures and connections and fall in love and fight and hate each other and whatever else. Uh, there's still plenty of uh, you know people out there being the hustlers that he tells stories about. They're all over, in fact. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd mm-hmm. say tech helps them in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at somebody like you look at you look at the Safdie brothers, they're making movies <laughs> with cell phones in them. You look at Noah Baumbach, he's making movies with cell phones in them. It's it's not hard to do if you have the interest in it. Right. And he doesn't. Seemingly Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino don't. Well, Wes Anderson, I don't know that he ever, like, even his contemporary set movies are barely contemporary set. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when it, when is the Royal Tenenbaum set? Who when knows? When is Darjeeling Limited set? Right. So did, did you ever have a chance to talk to Anderson over the course of writing this book, or would you want to? I have not, and I do not think I would want to. Um, it it's, it's not necessarily something that I think comes uh, with the territory of writing and academic work because you want to maintain the sort of veil of journalistic reserve, I guess. And I don't necessarily think that he would love everything that I say about him in this book. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not eager to talk to him now by any means. Um, if he ever feels like perusing this book, I think there's probably some things in there he might take umbrage with. Then again, I don't know if I were him whether I would read a book about myself. <laughs> Do, are you uh, willing to talk about any of the things you might he think you think he might take umbrage with? Um, well, it's, it's stuff that I'm sure many of his admirers might take umbrage with as well, uh, which is, you know, my comments on his, his relative disinterest in, um, characters who are not, uh, cishet white men. I think he has, he, when he turns his gaze towards the past, it coincides with a moment when he was coming under a lot of heat for the way he depicted the world around him uh, when he made Magnolia. He went out there and said, I am making the ultimate movie about the San Fernando Valley. And people said, well, there are very few black people of consequence in your story about the San Fernando Valley. And he said, well, that's the way it is. Stop talking to me. <laughs> and and basically made his interviews incredibly contentious <laughs> um, and, and was sending very mixed messages about why he had told his story with the demographic that he had makeup makeup that he had and whether that was actually reflective of the communities that he was depicting, et cetera. He made one more movie in the present day. And then he basically said, you know what, forget it. And I'm going to make movies set in times when I don't have to, if I want to worry too much about the perspectives outside, what were the dominant perspectives in storytelling of that time? If you look at There Will Be Blood, it's a movie that people said, well, where are all the women in that movie? And he said, well, it's it would be historically inaccurate for there to be prominent female figures, which is a sort of a funky thing to say. Right. Um, and it sort of suits your narrative better than it suits the actual narrative of history. To, to try to bring it full circle, then, we sort of started with the, uh, the auteurs of the 90s retreating into the past. And it seems like, I don't know that that exact criticism applies to all of them, but the auteur has traditionally, at least in America, been this sort of like lone cowboy uh, uh, working against the corporate interests to make sure there's some kind of authenticity in arts. But it's pretty much historically been from the perspective of these white filmmakers who were able to make those movies at that time, these white male filmmakers. And so now we're at a point where I think a lot of audiences are looking for a broader perspective outside of that one that is fairly limited or can be limited if you don't sort of open it up. And so I wonder if that is something that's maybe a, a critique of what has been this last wave of well-budgeted 90s American filmmakers uh, who pretty much are still white men making movies in the past, often about white men. Is that too, is that too cynical? Well, it's not too cynical because it's, it's very analogous to things that I have said in the last few minutes and have said, you know, in the book and elsewhere. Um, I think the the American notion of the or the Hollywood notion of the Maverick auteur uh, is really comes back to that great book, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind. Great with an asterisk on it, because a lot of people think it is not that great. It is incredibly readable. Yes. <laughs> um, and a book that arguably sort of 
slapped a cookie cutter on the uh, the new Hollywood era, which is the era most associated with the American ideal of the Maverick auteur, and really centered it around notions of, yeah, white male ego and white male um, excess and uh, decentering the the roles that people who were not white male mavericks played in that Hollywood machine of that era. Um, I think you you can't really discount that from looking at who makes it into the canon now. You're still feeling the ripple effects of that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, how how much can you blame Paul Thomas Anderson for making the movies he wants to make and having them be received as well as they are? I mean, it's you know it's not his fault that there are these other cultural forces at work. Right. Well, so that's maybe a point where we can let people uh, come to their own conclusions. They should probably uh, read the book to help themselves orient uh, orient their, their opinion maybe on some of what he has had to say as well as his movies, which are just interesting. There are a bunch of great movies. Um, and I'm happy I got to talk to you again. So before I do let you go, I do want to give you a chance to plug both the book where people can find it, as well as I know you've got a million other things. You've got a book about Bob Dylan you're writing. You've got a sub stack. You've got great articles. What, what do you want to plug while I have you? Well, uh, the book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, is out just about everywhere now. Um, everywhere you get your books, presumably online. I don't think it's going to be on the shelves at Barnes & Noble necessarily, as it is a work of academic film theory. Um, but you can find it wherever you find your books online. Um, and if you order it through the uh, Columbia University Press website, you can uh, get a nice little discount with a uh, code that you can find in my pinned tweet at Twitter, which is probably the other best place to find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ethan underscore Warren underscore. And if you go there, you can find the the discount code to get the <laughs> get the percent off the book. Um, and you can find more at EthanRAWarren.com. I, I have done a lot of types of writing in my life and I have made a movie myself called West of Her that you can watch on various services. I don't ever know quite what streaming service it's on at a given time. Um, I've written a couple of plays which you can also purchase the scripts of uh, on Amazon alongside the book. Um, yeah, you can find uh, all of that and more at EthanRAWarren.com. Well, Ethan, it's great to talk to you again. I really love the book and I'm looking forward to everything else you're working on. So thanks so much for being here. Great. Thank you for having me. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. It could be fantasy. Oh. Or maybe it's because he needs me, 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 he needs me. He needs me.